Good evening. I'm Amy Steiner, and on behalf of Cantor Schwartz, our music director, Colin Fowler, and the entire music and adult learning committees, it is my honor to introduce tonight's guest, Peter Gelb, general manager of the Metropolitan Opera. Mr. Gelb first began at the Met while in high school when he worked as an usher. At 17, Mr. Gelb began working for the impresario Sol Hurok. He then became an assistant manager of the Boston Symphony Orchestra and was Vladimir Horowitz's manager during the pianist's career revival in the 1980s. Mr. Gelb founded and until 1992 served as president of Cami Video a division of Columbia Artist Management, and then became president of the Sony Classical Record Label. In 2006, Mr. Gelb became the 16th general manager of the Metropolitan Opera. In that role, Mr. Gelb has launched a number of initiatives to revitalize opera and to connect it to a wider audience. Under his leadership, the Met has recruited many of the world's greatest theater, film, and opera directors, increased the number of new productions, and launched The Met Live in HD, the award-winning series of live performance transmissions to movie theaters now seen in 70 countries. Other Met initiatives under Mr. Gelb include a commissioning program for new operas, free outdoor tr transmissions and recitals, a Rush Tickets program, a 24-hour Met Radio channel on Sirius XM, and the online subscription streaming service Met Opera On Demand. His honors include multiple Emmy, Grammy, and Peabody Awards, the Sanford Prize from the Yale School of Music, and Francis Chevalier de la Légion d'Honneur. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to Peter Gelb. Thank you. Good evening. I, I wish I could uh, be a singing general manager, but uh, <laughs> I, can't, uh, I can't compete. Um, as you all know, the Metropolitan Opera and the Park Avenue Synagogue have something in common besides our Jewish congregations, uh, <laughs> which, which are great singing voices. We have Ananda Tremko, and you have Cantor Schwartz and his wonderful uh, Cantor colleagues. Park Avenue Synagogue also has very deep meaning for me since when I was five years old, my father used to bring me here uh, for Friday night Kiddush in the year following his own father's death. I grew up on East 86th Street. And my experiences here as a child are firmly embedded in my Jewish soul. Um, even though I'm, I've not pursued a religious life as an adult, I am a cultural Jew and very proud to be one. I was very honored to receive uh, an invitation from Rabbi Cosgrove and Cantor Schwartz to speak this evening, uh, particularly since I knew that some members of the Jewish community were very angry at the Met and me for presenting uh, John Adams' opera, The Death of Klinghoffer, in the fall of 2014. In fact, uh, some Jewish groups protested outside of the Met 
demonstrated outside the Met in protest with a few radicals even threatening me with death in an attempt to stop us from producing Adam's masterful opera about a terrorist hijacking in the 80s, which the demonstrators considered to be both anti-Semitic and, and pro-terrorist. As you can see, I was not assassinated. And thank thankfully for me, Jews can't easily be excommunicated. Uh, it's true. Uh, undaunted, the opera went on and enjoyed a significant success. I think seeing it, most audiences, and I hope some of you saw it, realized that it was certainly neither anti-Semitic nor a glorification of terrorism that it was accused of being. Tomorrow's, so now that we've gotten that over with, I can, <laughs> tomorrow's matinee and evening performances marked the final day of the Mets' 133rd or 134th season and my 11th as its general manager. Even though running the Met uh, for this amount of time has pr probably shortened my life expectancy by a decade or two, I have no other major regrets. One of the leaders of the Met board is fond of quoting an aphorism he attributes to Winston Churchill, that the only endeavor, endeavor more complicated than grand opera is war. Uh, actually, Churchill never said that and I've never been to war, but having led the Met for the past 11 seasons, I can imagine what it feels like to be a battle-worn veteran, although I don't think I'm suffering from post-operatic stress syndrome just yet. <laughs> but in terms of aging and wear and tear, I think it would be fair for every year as head of the Met to be calculated perhaps in dog years, since dealing with the various forces and factions at the world's largest performing arts company is a formidable task. With its $300 million annual budget and 3,200 employees, the Met is a multi-headed organism that requires constant attention. For those of you who are statistically inclined, under my 11-season watch, the Met has presented 2,414 performances, not that I'm counting, fe featuring 1,325 different principal singers, not all of whom had colds, uh, 214 revivals and 70, 72 new productions, 18 of which were Met premieres. During that same 11-year period, we sold more than 8 million tickets at the Met and another 23 million in movie theaters and had a cumulative radio and television audience of about 27 million. Our live and HD transmissions that are shown in movie theaters are seen on every continent with the exception of Antarctica. <laughs> this is the Met's approach to cultural inclusiveness since audiences around the world, from inside the Arctic Circle in Tromso, Norway, to as far south as uh, Uruguay and Argentina, and from as far west as Anchorage to as far east as Jerusalem and Cairo, are simultaneously sharing our live transmissions of grand opera with each other. The HD programs also have had a positive impact on our casting, since opera stars like singing to a global audience. And the cameras have helped reinforce good acting on our stage, since singers know that even when they're not singing, they might be seen in a close-up reaction shot. This makes them stay in character throughout, which is a benefit to the audience in the opera house as well. Long gone are the days when the Met used to keep food stashes available in hidden corners of the stage for Luciano Pavarotti, <laughs> who would like to snack between arias. My main preoccupation at the Met is to ensure that this aging art form stays afloat through new initiatives that will stimulate the public to keep attending and donors to keep giving.
For grand opera, the challenges of staying closely connected with the public are greater than for some other art forms, since, as we all know, operas are long and in foreign languages, with the core opera repertory coming mostly from the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. With the basic repertoire largely set, although we are certainly attempting to make inroads with new works, it makes it even harder for an established older audience to accept change. Yet change is essential in order to achieve artistic renewal. Without change in the form of new productions and newer work, any performing art form would fossilize and ultimately not be able to attract new audiences. On the other hand, the music critics have become jaded by the repeating repertoire and seem to rarely be satisfied with either new productions or revivals of old productions. While I hire directors of all stripes from Broadway and the West End to Toronto, for example, the Toronto's great director, Robert Carson, who, who just led, uh, staged or covered hit production of Rosencavalier, there is one core quality that these directors have in common. They are first and foremost excellent storytellers who are committed to presenting clear narratives to their audiences. They understand that there is an audience out there with whom they must connect in order to achieve popular success. The very first production of my tenure at the Met in 2006 was the late Academy Award-winning filmmaker Anthony Minghella's stunning presentation of Madame a Butterfly, which at the be beginning of my term, even most of the critics liked. But I still remember Anthony's incredulousness at his first press conference to announce that he would be directing Butterfly, his very first opera, and sadly, because of his untimely death, his last. One of the critics said to him, or asked him, what are you going to do to Butterfly? Surprised, Antony said, what do you mean, what am I going to do to Butterfly? Nothing. I'm going to tell the story of Butterfly. And that is just what he did, touchingly and poetically. And that's what good directors do, in spite of goading from the critics. As Eugene O'Neill once said of his critics, God bless every bone in their heads. <laughs> Part of my job involves taking calculated and necessary creative risks, such as the spectacular but controversial ring cycle of Robert Lepage that utilized 3D technology. In the performing arts, hewing to the status quo might be the greatest risk of all, since the result can, can be artistic stagnation. The challenge of sustaining the aging art form of opera to keep it young and vital requires nonstop attention. The search committee of the Met's board of directors wasn't joking when they told me at my interview that one of my primary qualifications was that I lived four blocks from Lincoln Center. <laughs> After a one-year interim term as general manager-elect, I officially became the Met's 16th general manager on August 1st, 2006. Several months earlier, I had held a press conference on the Met stage in which I announced my plans to reinvigorate the company. To reassure our core audience, I quoted Rudolf Bing, the legendary ninth general manager, who had said in his, in his inaugural 1950 press conference, I will attempt to run this house on the principle of quality only. But I also read this quote from him, which was, what may be right now might have been quite wrong before, and what was right so far may be wrong in the future. <laughs> I was beginning the balancing act of connecting the Met to a broader audience while trying not to threaten our loyal older audience, who not only bought tickets, but also provided the bulk of our contributions. 
Not a, unlike a political platform for change, I announced the Met's new strategic plans, which included a dramatic increase in the number of new productions each season, with a new roster of the world's greatest theater directors at the helm, an even greater emphasis on securing more performances per season from the best singers and guest conductors, a strong commitment to producing and presenting contemporary work, including commissions, and expanding the Met's repertoire with previously neglected masterpieces, a new tie to the world of contemporary visual art, and a new initiative in media with global digital distribution of our live content to opera lovers around the world. And finally, I announced an effort to tear down the Met's elitist image through a wide variety of public programs that I hoped would reopen our institution to the world. In fact, in order to get things moving, our very first opening night in September 2006 was transmitted live and free to an audience in Times Square, which was closed to traffic for the occasion. By presenting ourselves in Times Square, we dramatically demonstrated our plan to engage the public. Thousands of opera lovers and casual visitors experienced grand opera in the hub of New York, watching us simultaneously on numerous giant screens from Budweiser's to Nasdaq's. From our very first season in 2006, we introduced family operas in English during the holidays. We launched our rush ticket program with expensive orchestra seats available for only $20, now $25. We invited the public to, free open, to attend free open dress rehearsals. We offered visual art exhibits, and we started the round-the-clock around the clock Met Channel on Sirius Satellite Radio, among other, many other brand-new audience-building initiatives. All of these projects were embraced by the public and continue today. In order to run the Met, I have to wear many hats. I'm art the artistic and business leader, fundraiser, and sometimes amateur medical director for the opera stars. <laughs> During the season, I often feel like a doctor who is always on call. In fact, after 11 seasons as general manager, dealing with the fragile state of tenors and sopranos, Cantor Schwartz excluded. <laughs> I've come to realize that there are only three, states, three stages of health for singers. They're always catching a cold, recovering from a cold, or suffering from a cold. Re recently, one famous and talented tenor that I tried coaxing from his dressing room back onto the stage and who had no fever and not even a case of the sniffles told me that he didn't think he could, could go on because he felt cold inside. <laughs> Which brings me to the old tenor joke. Don't listen, Cantor Schwartz. How do you put a sparkle in a tenor's eyes? Shine a flashlight in his ear. <laughs> Long before I came Long before I came to the Met, I thought that I was well-trained in dealing with the challenging demands of artists with complicated personalities. In the 80s, I managed Vladimir Horowitz, who was perhaps the greatest pianist of all time, but who only agreed to return to Moscow to perform his historic 1985 concert during the Cold War after I had promised, with the assistance of the American and British ambassadors, to airlift into Moscow his nightly dinner of fresh Dover soul the only food he would eat for dinner at the time, and guaranteed with the help of President Reagan that his Steinway would be kept under 24-hour guard by the U.S. Marine Corps. 
Along the way, I also picked up practical advice from Horowitz. Horowitz taught me the value of acoustics. He said, if the check is good, acoustics are good. <laughs> he also taught me how to, how to read a menu in an expensive restaurant, from right to left, like Hebrew, he explained. <laughs> Towards the end of his life, after I'd worked for him for 12 years, he said to me, I've known you so long, you were like a member of our family. From now on, instead of calling me Mr. Horowitz, I would like you to call me Maestro. Dealing, dealing with temperamental artists like Horowitz helped prepare me for the monumental task of managing the world's largest opera company, a job that I think falls somewhere between being a lion tamer and a tightrope walker. Legend has it that Rudolf Bing, the illustrious former general manager of the Met, would relax from the tension of dealing with opera stars by pretending to smack them on his desk with a fly swatter. My immediate predecessor as general manager, Joseph Volpe, was famous for threatening a difficult diva, who shall remain nameless, that her wig was going on the stage with or without her. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes I fantasize about a utopian opera house where singers are always well behaved and show up on time for rehearsals. Of course, the uncertainties of our art form are part of what makes opera so exciting for its fans and for those of us who work at the Met as well. From my first day on the job, it's been my mission to honor the Mets past while trying to nudge it forward. Of course, I realize that my work is far from complete. When I was a teenager and part-time usher in the family circle standing room, which is the nosebleed section at the very top of the Mets auditorium, I had my first exposure, exposure to some of the Mets' more rabid fans who would often fight with each other over their favorite singers. My job was to break up the fights or call in reinforcements. These devoted fans, the operatic equivalent of bleacher rats at ball games, were highly opinionated and also ready to pick a fight at a moment's notice. Other saner standees would object to these intrusions on their opera experience and turn to me, the 16-year-old usher, to quiet them. I would try my best, but sometimes I would have to call in the off-duty firemen who worked as security guards at the Met to fully restore order. In between breaking up fights, from my vantage point at the very top of the Met, more than 100 feet from the stage, I listened to the glorious voices of the greatest singers of 1970, a golden era for operatic voices. The legendary Leontine Price, perhaps the greatest Aida of all time. Renata Tibaldi, Italy's number one diva, and Maria Callas's main rival for the title of prima donna assoluta. And Franco Corelli, the forerunner to Pavarotti as the world's greatest tenor, but whose severe episodes of stage fright tragically foreshortened his career. All this had a magical effect on my teenage soul. From the impressive gold proscenium that framed the stage, the sea of plush red velvet seats below, the Met seemed to represent everything theatrical and glamorous about New York. It was as if all the performing arts had been rolled into one gold-leafed operatic palace. This is when I fell in love with the Met. My teenage experiences provided good training for my job today. When I was 17, I skipped going to college and went to work instead for the famous impresario Saul Hirok, who once said, if the people don't want to come, you can't stop them. <laughs> of, of, course, of course, back then, 
I had no idea that some 36 years later, I would be asked to run this glorious and wacky institution, which because of some of the antics of our performers, sometimes feels more like an asylum than an opera house. <laughs> but I'm very glad that I did. Which brings me back to the death of Klinghoffer. When I was a child attending Sunday school, I was taught by my rabbi that we shouldn't go to bed at night without having learned at least one new thing during the day. I was brought up to be intellectually curious about the world around me and to try to understand the reasons behind human conflict. I was taught that knowledge was the key to enlightenment and that art should be experienced, not censored. About 25 years ago, I made a documentary film about the cellist and political activist Mstislav Rostropovich and his return from exile to Russia at the end of the Cold War. During one scene in the film, Rostropovich repeated the advice of his mentor, the composer Dmitry Shostakovich, who Stalin had oppressed and censored. Unbowed, Shostakovich had said, we must never stop being soldiers of music. And that's the credo to which I aspire as well. Thank you very much. Would you like me? Well, thank you, sir, for joining us this evening. We're not done, everybody. <laughs> um, if we can, I think we'd like to have a, just a brief hour and a half Q and A. <laughs> just, uh, just a few questions. We'll take questions from you all first. I think Ozzy and, Ozzy and I are going to take the first hour. Uh, and then we'll hand it off to you. I think uh, the most burning question on my mind is, why not Antarctica? It's very cold down there. Okay. Just uh, actually, we've actually tried to, to get our signal to Antarctica, but so far we have not been able to uh, overcome, overcome the uh, frigid conditions. Perhaps with global warming we'll get there yet. Okay. I'm just, that, that just stuck out to me. Um, so there, I think, aren't, there aren't too many people down there. Well, that's true. I just, you know. I'll cast a wide net. Um, so having been at the Met uh, 11 years, what, uh, looking back, what would you say is um, the thing that maybe you are most proud of or you view as the most successful? Well, you know, these days, um, the challenges for the performing arts are so great that um, I think what I've, I'm most proud of is trying to keep the energy level of the Met, the, the creative and artistic energy level of the Met high and to keep it connected to uh, the public, um, which is a rather broad uh, answer. But, you know, it's, uh, I mean, I've, I sort of work as, a, as both a macro and micro manager. I'm, I'm literally, you know, in the auditorium every day uh, overseeing uh, rehearsals. Um, but I'm also constantly trying to figure out how we can rejigger or reconfigure or, or adapt the way the Met has been in terms of its schedule, in terms of how, how it does its uh, business, um, to ensure its uh, sustainability and longevity. Um, you know, for me, the proudest moment of, of, for in any season is when the curtain goes up on a new production and the audience likes it. Um, and uh, that's a moment of great satisfaction. But uh, I can't necessarily name one thing, I, you know, certainly this, this um, um, I, I live in the present and, and in the future. Um, I can't really dwell upon the past so much, 
But I'm very excited um, as we conclude um, our season tomorrow uh, with our new production of Rosen Cavalier, uh, which uh, has been playing to sold out houses with great success. And uh, I'm uh, always um, you know, trying to look for, for new talents, for new uh, opportunities, um, new ways to connect the Met to uh, the larger cultural picture. So I, I want to um, thank you again, Mr. Gilb. It's such an honor to, to have you here, and thank you for your beautiful talk. I, I want to hear more about that tension between tradition and innovation, tension that we have nothing to do with, of course. <laughs> but, um, but, but, but specifically, let's say you have a great idea, you have a great artist who is going to come and either take an old work and revolutionize it or, 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 or create a new work, and people in, you know, in the, up there are, you know, well, what are you doing to our Aida? What are you doing to our Bohem? That's why I'm leaving Bohem alone. <laughs> that's that's, that's it, everybody. Thanks so much. <laughs> okay, that's all we wanted to hear. Great. Right. Uh, well, you know, the the, the, uh, the I think the audience at the Met is in a state of transition, actually, um, and it's impossible to uh, if I were you know the, my job is both to listen to the public but also to try to deliver the pub to the public things that they may not have thought of themselves um, and still like. And the, um, it's, it's essential, I think, to, um, to, in order to move the art form forward, uh, to try to um, present productions in new ways, uh, take classical, repertoire and, and give it new life. Not everything we do works, I, I realize that. But um, it's, there is no, the, the, an, the, the alternative, which is to leave everything the way it is, which some people might say they would like, I don't think they really would like in the end. Because uh, what would happen would be basically uh, the, the Met would become a, a, uh, a very dusty kind of museum with, and, and sooner or later all the scenery and everything would just fall apart. Um, so. You know, we have to constantly, any, any art form, you know, the, whether it's a Shakespeare company, which is presenting Shakespeare plays that were written 300 years ago, 400 years ago, or, or um, uh, you know, any museums that used to feel it was okay just to, just to rotate their existing collections. Art, art form, museums, visual arts, performing arts companies today all know that they have to be more active than ever in trying to engage new audiences, because without new audiences, no art form can survive. So, you know, we have to, so one way I try to mitigate the, the, the risk, and there always is a risk of, of alienating audiences, uh, is to choose um, not only great singers who are, who are, who are uh, can, can interpret and, and, and present opera uh, in ways that 30 or 40 years ago it was not possible. I mean, when I first came to the Met, the uh, English stage director, Richard Jones, said to me, oh, so you're going to work for the Met. That's where they park and bark. <laughs> uh, and um, clearly, clearly, that's not, was an unfair, unkind, I should say, uh, comment. But the way in which I try to work is by choosing stage directors who have great track records of, of success and by choosing directors who are willing to really honor the story of the operas. And even if they change the setting or if they move it or if they update it or, or move it around a little bit, 
And this Rosen Cavalier, for example, um, of uh, Robert Carson's is updated to pre-World War I. So it's, uh, it gives it a, 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 it's still very beautiful, um, but it has a, it gives it more kind of uh, political and social meaning. It's the year of the premiere, correct, right? The year of the pre premiere, but more important, it was, it was the year of the premiere, but more importantly what Carson was trying to do was sort of present it as a, as at the portal to World War I, basically. Um, because in the libretto there is, I don't know how many of you know Rosencavalier, but in, in the libretto of Rosencavalier there's, there's, it, there's an indication that, in fact, since the, uh, the Marshal Lynn, played by Rene Fleming, who's married to the field marshal, um, uh, is, you know, that there is a somewhat of a militaristic society that, that is in existence, and uh, that uh, the father of Sophie, who is um, the ultimately won by Octavian, um, uh, is a, her father is, a, is an arms dealer back in that early period. Anyway, I don't, I don't want to get sidetracked with the plot. But the, the um, uh, I, th I think it's very important for, for operas to be presented, whether they're put back, you know, we have a new Traviata we're thinking about now, which will be actually set in the 18th century. Um, but it, at the same time, it will, be, it will have a, a, uh, an aesthetic abstraction to it that will make it feel very modern. There's no, there's no one way of doing anything. But the most important thing is to find, you know, great directors uh, who, have a sense of commitment and uh, to the narratives of the librettos and, and are willing to present them. I think it's very, one of the, the challenges in Europe, there was a movement that uh, started in the, in, I guess in the 60s or 70s of, which was derided in America as Eurotrash, uh, which was the idea of, of deconstructing um, opera stories and you know, turning them upside down. We don't do that at the Met because I think it, for any opera to be successful, the audience has to not only understand it, but be captivated by it, both old audiences and new audiences. We, so we don't present operas that you need a, 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 an essay to understand what's going on the stage. And, and, and what about, uh, this is very helpful, of course, and we have a saying here that uh, says, uh, respect tradition and encourage innovation, right? Which we always, I have in my office. So um, uh, what, about, what about new music? There are so many operas, uh, such a wealthy um, repertoire. Why do we need to create new music? Why is this important? And you have commissioned a number of operas. Uh, we talked about Nico Muli, a, a famous composer who's also writing music for the synagogue, right? Now, wh why, why do we need that new music? Right, well, probably for the same reason that you feel you need new music here. Is everybody uh, listening to this? I'm sorry, is everybody getting this? <laughs> <laughs> okay. New music, uh, you know, I think, I think new music is, is, an, is first of all, new music can be very good, um, but it's, it's an opportunity to, again, move the art form forward. And I, you know, I think your, your um, uh, message of respecting tradition and, and innovation is exactly what I'm trying to do with the Met, um, because we have to do both. And, but new music, um, th there are many important operas that have been written uh, in the last 30 or 40 years. When I came to the Met, um, I felt that certain operas that should have been presented at the Met had not yet been presented. We, we presented those. We've also commissioned new works, like by Nico Muley, who's Next opera is Marnie, the uh, adaptation of the, of the Hitchcock uh, psychological thriller. Um, so, and we work working with uh, composers of new music and, and, and leading directors. For example, Bart Shear, Bartlett Shear, who just directed the play Oslo, that is uh, such an important play, um, has directed seven operas at the Met. And um, 
you know, he also directed, he's directed uh, um, uh, classic operas that have had new productions, and he's also directed Nico Muley's first opera, Two Boys, which is a drama set in the chat rooms of, an internet, of the internet in, in the 90s. So, you know, I think that uh, art needs to, to uh, be approached from all different sides. I mean, there's, it's, it's very important to, to explore the boundaries of art. Of course, I'm very mindful of the fact that we have a 3,800-seat theater, and we need to fill seats, and that's one of the problems today. There, there aren't enough opera audiences, uh, so we don't want to, the last thing we want to do is offend our audiences. We want to stimulate them, and, and part of stimulating them is, pre is presenting new work that can, that can actually um, um, connect with them. Uh, speaking of new things and also younger things, uh, obviously uh, Maestro Levine is finishing up his tenure. Um, I personally am a big fan of uh, the new uh, music director who takes over next year, is that correct? Well, actually, it's a, long, it's a long process. He's the music director designate, but he doesn't actually become music director until 2020. This is Yannick yes. Nezetz again, <laughs> um, who's conducting at this very moment the Flying Dutchman. Right now. Um, so I was, I was very excited by that. I thought that was a, a, an inspired hire. Is, uh, what can we expect from him looking forward or any other innovations or things that he might bring to the table? Well, you know, he, he is very much inspired by, uh, from, a, from a repertoire, a musical operatic repertoire perspective, by Maestro Levine, in the sense that he believes, and I, as I believe, uh, that a conductor of a major opera house like the Metropolitan Opera, which explores all different types of repertoire from uh, from Verdi to Puccini to Wagner to Strauss to Donizetti to, uh, uh, to, to uh, Stravinsky to all the composers. He believes that a well-rounded music director, a good music director, has to be an expert and uh, in all the, in all all areas of music. And to make the orchestra of the Met to continue to make it great, as Maestro Levine has done over the past 50 years, almost 50 years, uh, requires a conductor who's willing to to approach the repertoire from all sides. Um, I think what's different about him is that, from Maestro Levine, is that he is, I mean, he's like Maestro Levine, he's a great musician, uh, but he's also very interested in uh, the community, and he's interested in, in bringing the Met into the community. I, there are a number of ideas that I've wanted to pursue, he's very interested in pursuing as well, and he has his own ideas, and, and uh, I think that he will become a real an integrated artistic citizen of New York once he finally has t a lot of time here. Um, and uh, we're already exploring and discussing collaborations with other cultural institutions in New York uh, to connect the Met more broadly to, to the cultural community. Um, we were talking uh, when, when we had dinner about the fact that on Sunday, the Met is actually closed. Yes. And during the week, it's open. And we were just curious about... Um, uh, you know, uh, you, you made, a, made a comment about the unions, and, and we were reading in the paper about certain union issues uh, that are happening all, everywhere, but specifically in the Met. Um, how are you dealing with this? Well, you know, the Met um, is a very complicated uh, institution when it comes to labor. Uh, we have uh, 15 different unions at the Met, and um, we, in, you know, I I 10 or 20 years ago, when attendance was very, was very much higher, um, it was obvious. It, it wasn't necessary to have to think about Sunday matinees. Uh, the Mets union contracts do not allow Sunday matinee performances. So uh, it's our hope that um, since audience patterns have changed, since uh, it's obviously obviously the preference of our of our audience and the public to have a Sunday performance, 
uh, we want to make sure that that can happen. But to do that, we have to negotiate because under our current contracts, we do not have permission to have Sunday performances. Um, and uh, hopefully in the next uh, labor negotiation, which I'm so looking forward to, <laughs> uh, uh, we will, that will be one of the uh, areas that we will accomplish. Uh, speaking of unions and negotiations and houses, um, uh, the Times recently published an article, and it's been known for years, but has, um, um, what are your thoughts, or is there any future of having a smaller version of you know, a metropolitan opera annex or a smaller house to put on smaller scale productions? Well, I mean, it, it would be wonderful if we had such, such an such a experimental theater to, to try different work, because I mean, that, because you know, having a 3,800-seat house, we really do have to think about the size of the auditorium, but not only in terms of filling it, but also in terms of the, the size of a musical piece. I mean, to do a chamber-sized opera doesn't really make sense inside the Met. But although we're not, at this point, um, uh, looking at a necessarily a dedicated smaller house for the Met, instead what we're exploring right now is the possibility of collaborating with other institutions in the city uh, where we might join forces, like, say, for example, with BAM, say, or with uh, the Public Theater, or, um, or or other, or the Armory, where we could actually um, put on works jointly that could be um, more suitable for a smaller space, but in collaboration with another institution. So hopefully, that will come to pass in the coming seasons. Okay. So I, I want to obviously, I do want to hear more about the the comments about the divas and how you deal with them. Um, <laughs> C Colin, do you know how many... I was going to say, welcome to my life. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> you want to talk about tenors and sopranos? Colin, do you know how many um, tenors it takes to change a light bulb? Six. One to do it, and five to say that he can't reach that high. <laughs> <laughs> and you know how many altos are needed? None. Because <laughs> none of them can reach that high. <laughs> But seriously, about, about, you know, opera is all about the voices. I mean, I'm sorry to say that, but opera is all about the voices. Well, you, and, would, and you would say that. Uh, well, tell us more about the, the greatest singers you, you, you worked with and uh, any, any experiences that you've had and any, um, any suggestion to Colin uh, as someone who needs to deal with uh, divas on a day-to-day on -day basis. Well, I, I, I don't think, you know, I don't know you very well. But I, I would say that any singer who would uh, do a medley of uh, all the uh, great tenor, high tenor arias in, uh, in the span of uh, six, six or seven minutes um, is not a, a diva. <laughs> <laughs> so. I think he's actually a divo. I think that's the actual, <laughs> if we're going to conjugate it properly. But I, you know, I, I, um, I you know, I, I uh, I can't, the good stories I can't really tell you, so. <laughs> uh, but it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, I've twice, I mentioned a few of them in my, in my remarks, but I, I think that, um, yeah, I, I have to say that I have the greatest sympathy for, for um, opera singers because, particularly on the stage of the Met, you know, most European opera houses are about half the size of the Metropolitan Opera House. Metropolitan Opera House literally is, is you know, the, the Royal Opera, you could fit the Royal Opera and the Vienna Opera together and you'd have inside the Met. Um, so because of that, uh, what most people don't realize is that it makes it that much harder to sing on the stage of the Met. And some European singers who do very well in Europe cannot sing on the stage of the Met. Their voices just aren't big enough. 
And for a singer to sing on the stage of the Met without the aid, obviously, of no amplification is, you know, they, these are, these are uh, the equivalent of, of marathon runners or, or, or the greatest sprinters. I mean, they're, they're cultural athletes who use their entire bodies to produce sound. Or cantors on Yom Kippur. Or cantors on Yom Kippur. <laughs> So, so they, they, um, you know, it's, I, they have my complete sympathy, sympathy and support, and uh, and they know it. You know, I, I, we joke and they you know, about about their their fra frailties, and they and mo those with senses of humor or, or have no problem talking about it. But they all, you know, they we all know that what they do is one of the bravest things any singer, or maybe the stupidest, <laughs> bravest or stupidest thing any, any singer could do, which is get up on the stage of the mat, go for high notes. Uh, and uh, you know you have to you have to have a, an incredible kind of uh, personality to do that. So it's no wonder that uh, they get sick, and you know because since their body is their is their instrument, it's it's makes them psychologically more anxious and nervous about about the possibility of getting sick. And you know uh, there is a an army of of uh, ear, nose, and throat doctors who are on 24-hour call, uh, ready ready to. Um, uh, probe singers' throats, examine their vocal cords under microscopes, and uh, I mean, I've seen more pictures that I'd never wanted to see <laughs> of, of the insides of, of uh, vocal cords. <laughs> and singers seem to think I'm fascinated for to, to <laughs> by, I, but they're really quite disgusting. Uh, and Does but anyone I, want more dessert? <laughs> we can get another round, please. In any event, they are, they are brave, 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 brave artists, and uh, they, they deserve all the applause and, uh, and support they, that, they, that they receive. Um, we'll, start to, we'll start to land this plane, um, but I was just curious, uh, obviously you have a, a very complicated, very difficult, very hopefully rewarding job. Um, what is the best part of your job? The, um, the best part of my job, the most exciting part of my job really is when um, a performance is successful. Because, you know, every there's so many things that can go wrong um, in a performance. I mean, last night I just left the opera house when I got a phone call that the uh, singer singing Don Giovanni had just walked off the stage and uh, had to be replaced by his cover. So, you know, there's always something, there's always something happening. So, so for me, the best moment is when it's over. <laughs> well said. Thank you. So, friends, we're going to take a few questions from uh, from the audience. Um, uh, Beth, if you. Hello, and thank you very much. I have one question and one comment that I'd like to make. First of all, where do you find a $25 orchestra seat ticket <laughs> that you talked about? Antarctica. <laughs> Antarctica? Antarctica. Uh, in Antarctica. And the comment that I would like to make is about your HD productions. Because I was a very big snob and said, I will never go to one. And then I went to one. And they are absolutely fabulous if you have never been. And I will tell you this, there was a memorable interview that you had entre act, between acts, with James Levine, Placido Domingo, and yourself this winter. And it was 
memorable, and I want to thank you for it. That's it. So, uh, so I want to take it into a, into a question. I, is it, aren't you worried that by the great HD um, theaters, um, people are not going to show up? Well, first I want to answer your question about the $25 tickets. Okay. Uh, so we have, our rush tickets are available um, every performance. So you have to, you have to fight for them. Uh, but there, but, right. But but there are there are twenty five there are usually about a hundred or more rush tickets for for each performance um, that are that are available and they're and they're decent seats some of them are, some of them are in the orchestra uh, or grand tier so and I mean. That's good to hear. Thank you. In fact, about two thirds of of our in this I guess to, to your question. Um, about two-thirds of our audience in the, for the movie theaters is outside of the United States. We've, we were concerned ourselves that we were so successful with the movie theater transmissions that we wanted to make sure it was not um, uh, harming the attendance or cannibalizing our attendance at the Met. So we have conducted extensive surveys about this. And in fact, what the most recent survey we had, which uh, surveyed um, members of our opera audience who never go to the movie theaters, as well as ones who do, um, locally and nationally, what we, what was the results that came back was that statistically it was basically a wash, that the number of people who went to the Met more often because they had seen uh, an HD show equaled the number of people who went less often uh, and because they were more comfortable going to HD shows. There's no question that in the suburbs um, there are, some of our older audience members uh, have found the comfort of going to a movie theater o uh, over battling the traffic and coming into the city. Um, but on the other hand, many of those people are people who might not have, might have stopped going to the opera altogether. So we are offering a prolongation of, of opera attendance to people who are older. So, but, but the statistics show us that, that it is not harming our attendance and it has done immeasurable good things for the Met. Um, it's, in, it's increased the Met's uh, brand uh, around the world. Uh, as I mentioned in my remarks, uh, singers, we're the only opera house. There are other opera houses that try to do what we do in, in, uh, in with movie theater transmissions, but we're the only one which has such a large global distribution that a singer like Anna Netrebko, who uh, typically on average sings two times a year at the Met, she's in demand everywhere. When I say two times, two runs at the Met, which equals you know several months of her operatic life each year. Uh, come to the Met partly because they know that, she knows that when she performs, she's reaching her entire audience around the world, which uh, only the Met can deliver. So it has helped us actually improve our casting, um, and which is certainly to the benefit of the people who come to see the Met in, in the Opera House. All right, we'll take two more questions. Maybe Mr. Glantin. Uh, so the clergy and administration of Park Avenue Synagogue have just a spectacular relationship with the lay leadership, you know, the trustees, the advisory boards. We never interfere in religious decisions. <laughs> we only offer advice if asked. Our criticism is always- Deb, can you cut the mic, please? <laughs> <laughs> criticism always muted and respectful. I wanted to know what your relationship, how would you, you would describe your interaction with your board? Well, I thought we were trying to <laughs> shut this down, <laughs> trying to wrap it up. Well, I'm, I'm still the head of the Met. Uh, the, 
you know, I have a very close relationship with the, with the Met Board. Um, I think it's, it's important. My, my style of management is to not uh, leave the board ever in the dark. And I, I mean, obviously the Met has a very large board and then they have a smaller board as well. But uh, the executive committee of the board, the managing directors of the board, which are the nucleus of the, of the Met Board, uh, meet regularly. I, I uh, meet the, the board leadership on a weekly basis. And uh, you know, I make sure that I don't that nothing I do is a surprise to them. However, you know, and, and you know, the board of the Met, I think, was very important for the Met's board and for any any cultural organization is that the board has very specific fiduciary and uh, governance responsibilities, uh, which they f should fulfill. And you know, I made it very clear when I first came to the Met that um, if you know that I really needed to have artistic independence. Um, and that if they didn't, in, in, in the aggregate, did not like what I was doing, they should fire me. And otherwise, they should let me do what I'm doing. So, so far, they haven't fired me. And, uh, and I try very hard to, to, you know, to be responsible, and uh, both uh, artistically and fiscally. You know, we, we, uh, it's very difficult to balance the books of the Met, but we've done it now for the last couple of years. And every year, we try to, we try to Cut our expenses and increase our revenues, and uh, we're, we're, you know, we, we never we're, we're working hard all the time to try to be responsible in, in both in the management and the art and in the artistic decision making. Okay, one last question, maybe over here. Does anyone know the difference between a soprano and a terrorist? <laughs> Anybody? You can negotiate with a terrorist. <laughs> Just saying. That's it for me tonight, everybody. <laughs> Obviously, we've been victimized. Uh, Mr. Gelb, I, um, I've been going to the opera most of my life. I'm not a performer. <laughs> I've been going to the opera most of my life, and um, that goes way back. And I've seen almost every opera there is probably in all those years. And um, frankly, I don't recognize most of them anymore, which I find a little disturbing. Most especially, I wanted to say in reference to Ozzy's remarks, um, if you go into the Metropolitan Museum and you see a brilliant masterpiece, nobody's going to go over to it and say, hey, why don't we repaint it, put a little color over here and a little whatever. So they're going to go out and they're going to get a Picasso or um, uh, Andy Warhol. They're going to get some new innovator instead of changing the old pieces, which is what disturbs me a little bit about what's going on with the Met today. And having said that, can I especially ask you about Cavalleria Stacana, which is supposed to be a happy, wonderful, exciting thing that takes place on Easter Sunday. And can you please explain what the new production is supposed to do. Sure, uh, and Mr. Gelb, welcome to Park Avenue Synagogue. <laughs> well, it means that we love you. <laughs> just a sign of love. Well, um, first of all, I, I, I understand what you're, uh, what you're saying, and, and you're not alone, I'm sure. Um, but the uh, Cavalleria Rusticana is not a happy opera. Uh, and it, it may be Easter Sunday, but it, there's death. There's death at the end of it, uh, so it's 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 a tragedy, and um, I you know so I think we should know that. But the um, you know I, I totally understand what you're saying. The, di the difference between visual arts and opera is that um, opera, for unfortunately, 
has, relies upon, just as a, a Shakespeare company relies upon, a, a limited number of pieces that represent the core repertory. And in order for, unlike a museum which can buy new art or commission new canvases or, or whatever, um, we, in order for, uh, uh, our, for the opera to, to re reinvigorate itself, we, we need to be able to present productions in new ways. Um, otherwise, it would be exactly the same. And there's no museum, as you point out, no museum is just relying upon its uh, old masters. You know, it's uh, in order to, to um, attract new audiences, uh, new visitors, they have to, a museum has to present new work. Opera, the performing arts are, in our case, it's a different type of new work, but it is, it is um, um, essential. And I think, um, you know, the, I, I really believe that the majority of our audience uh, appreciates the fact that we are attempting with the um, choices that we've made to present work in, in to, to reinvigorate work through new, through new productions. Uh, this year, we've had, I think we've had a very successful season, quite frankly, um, our, you know, beginning with our new production of Tristan, uh, to our um, presentation of Romeo and Juliet, uh, directed by Bart Scher this year, which was a huge success, um, to our Rosen Cavalier, to, you know, I, 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 I would, sorry, Pearl Fishers, thank you. <laughs> uh, that was Rusalka. So, so I guess some of the people in this room think, think, think that uh, it's okay what we're doing. Yeah, we, we <laughs> definitely do. So um, um, I think just we'll, if we can, if we can get you out of here on this, speaking of you say you uh, live in the present and the future, just looking forward just briefly, is there anything in the future that we may be able to look forward to or excited about or you particularly are excited about in the next year or two? Well, I'm particularly excited about what's going to happen next year when we present our new production of Tosca. Um, because the, um, you know, if, if there was one, probably the most significant mistake, and we all make mistakes, I would say under my watch was a replacing the Zeffirelli Tosca with a production, thank you, uh, <laughs> with, 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 a, with a, 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 pr a production directed by Luke Bondi, who uh, um, really was trying to capture the melodrama of the piece but failed to recognize that aesthetically what he did would be a turnoff to the Met audience. Um, so uh, next New Year's Eve, we're presenting a brand new Tosca that is directed by David McVicker, who has had wonderful success at the Met uh, with other productions. Of, he, did the, he directed the three Tudor Queen operas that were presented last year, uh, Maria Stuarda and Anna Bolena and Roberta Devereaux. And, He's a fantastic uh, stage director, and he and John McFarlane, his designer, have uh, created a new production that goes back to the uh, Puccini-indicated settings in the score of uh, the, loca the Napoleonic locations in, in Rome, uh, including the Castello San Angelo at the end, where Tosca leaps to her death. And, uh, but it, but it would be, it's going to be done in a way, and it's going to be done in a way that has um, uh, visually is, is spectacular, but also has a lot of uh, great dramatic focus. It's going to be on a steeply raked stage, so the, the, this fantastic scenery will feel much closer to the audience, and I think you will all like it. <laughs> 
So, Mr. Gilb, thank you. For, from, from the entire congregation and Rabbi Kastrov and Colin and myself, we really, really uh, thank you and appreciate that you're here. Um, I think that everyone who is sitting here tonight, next time on our visits to the Met, will, will have a, a, a deeper appreciation to what's going on. And we certainly hope that uh, whenever you meet, uh, visit us here at Park Avenue Synagogue, you will feel at home here as you were uh, growing up. So thank you again. And Lee we look forward to see you again soon. Well, thank Thank, thank, thank you, thank you so much. I, I appreciate being here so much. Thank you.